Chapter 4 of Planet of the Damned. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Planet of the Damned by Harry Harrison. Chapter 4 I've never seen anyone quite as angry as that doctor, Brian said. Can't blame him. Adriel shifted his immense weight and grunted from the console, where he was having a coded conversation with the ship's brain. He hit the keys quickly and read the answer from the screen. You took away his medical moment of glory. How many times in his life will he have a chance to nurse back to rugged, smiling health the triumphantly exhausted winner of the twenties? Not many, I imagine. The wonder of it is, how you managed to convince him that you and the ship here could take care of me as well as his hospital could. I could never convince him of that, Agel said. But I and the Cultural Relationships Foundation have some powerful friends on Anvar. I'm forced to admit, I brought a little pressure to bear. He leaned back and read the course tape as it streamed out of the printer. We have a little time to spare, but I would rather spend it waiting at the other end. We'll blast as soon as I have you tied down in a stasis field." The completeness of the stasis field leaves no impressions on the body or mind. In it there is no weight, no pressure, no pain, no sensation of any kind. Except for a stasis of very long duration, there is no sensation of time. To Brian's consciousness, Idjil flipped the switch off with a continuation of the same motion that had turned it on. The ship was unchanged. Only outside of the port was the red-shot blankness of jump space. "'How do you feel?' Agel asked. Apparently the ship was wondering the same thing. Its detector unit, hovering impatiently just outside of Brian's stasis field, darted down and settled on his bare forearm. The doctor back on Anvar had given the medical section of the ship's brain a complete briefing. A quick check of a dozen factors of Brian's metabolism was compared to the expected norm. Apparently everything was going well, because the only reaction was the expected injection of vitamins and glucose. "'I can't say I'm feeling wonderful yet,' Brian answered, levering himself higher on the pillows. "'But every day it's a bit better. Steady progress.' "'I hope so, because we have about two weeks before we get to Dis. Do you think you'll be back in shape by that time?' "'No promises,' Brian said giving a tentative squeeze to one bicep. It should be enough time, though. Tomorrow I start mild exercise and that will tighten me up again. Now tell me more about Dis and what you have to do there." I'm not going to do it twice, so just save your curiosity a while. We're heading for a rendezvous point now to pick up another operator. This is going to be a three-man team, you, me, and an exobiologist. As soon as he is aboard, I'll do a complete briefing for you both at the same time. What you can do now is to get your head into the language box and start working on your dissen. You'll want to speak it perfectly by the time we touch down." With an auto-hypno for complete recall, Brian had no difficulty in mastering the grammar and vocabulary of dissen. Pronunciation was a different matter altogether. Almost all the word endings were swallowed, muffled or gargled. The language was rich in glottal stops, clicks, and guttural strangling sounds. 
Vigil stayed in a different part of the ship when Brian used the voice-mirror and analysis-scope, claiming that the awful noises interfered with his digestion. Their ship angled through jump-space along its calculated course. It kept its fragile human cargo warm, fed them, and supplied breathable air. It had orders to worry about Brian's health, so it did, checking constantly against its recorded instructions and noting his steady progress. Another part of the ship's brain counted microseconds with moronic fixation, finally closing a relay when a predetermined number had expired in its heart. A light flashed and a buzzer hummed gently but insistently. Igel yawned, put away the report he had been reading, and started for the control room. He shuddered when he passed the room where Brian was listening to a playback of his dissent efforts. "'Turn off that dying brontosaurus and get strapped in,' he called through the thin door. "'We're coming to the point of optimum possibility, and we'll be dropping back into normal space soon.' The human mind can ponder the incredible distances between the stars, but cannot possibly contain within itself a real understanding of them. Marked out on a man's hand, an inch is a large unit of measure. In interstellar space, a cubical area with sides a hundred thousand miles long is a microscopically fine division. Light crosses this distance in a fraction of a second. To a ship moving with a relative speed far greater than that of light, this measuring unit is even smaller. Theoretically, it appears impossible to find a particular area of this size. Technologically, it was a repeatable miracle that occurred too often to even be interesting. Brian and Nigel were strapped in when the jump-drive cut off abruptly, lurching them back into normal space and time. They didn't unstrap, but just sat and looked at the dimly distant pattern of stars. A single sun, apparently of fifth magnitude, was their only neighbor in this lost corner of the universe. They waited while the computer took enough star sights to triangulate a position in three dimensions, muttering to itself electronically while it did the countless calculations to find their position. A warning bell chimed, and the drive cut on and off so quickly that the two acts seemed simultaneous. This happened again, twice, before the brain was satisfied it had made as good a fix as possible and flashed a navigation-power off-light. Igel unstrapped, stretched, and made them a meal. Igel had computed their passage time with precise allowances. Less than ten hours after they arrived a powerful signal blasted into their waiting receiver. They strapped in again as the navigation-power-on signal blinked insistently. A ship had paused in flight somewhere relatively near in the vast volume of space. It had entered normal space just long enough to emit a signal of radio query on an assigned wavelength. Igel's ship had detected this and instantly responded with a verifying signal. The passenger spacer had accepted this assurance and gracefully laid a ten-foot metal egg in space. As soon as this had cleared its jump field, the parent ship vanished toward its destination, light-years away. Igel's ship climbed up the signal it had received. This signal had been recorded and examined minutely. Angle, strength, and Doppler movement were computed to find course and distance. A few minutes of flight were enough to get within range of the far weaker transmitter in the drop capsule. Homing in on this signal was so simple, a human pilot could have done it himself. The shining sphere loomed up, then vanished out of sight of the viewports as the ship rotated to bring the space lock into line. Magnetic clamps cut in when they made contact. 
Go down and let the bug doctor in, Agel said. I'll stay and monitor the board in case of trouble. What do I have to do? Get into a suit and open the outer lock. Most of the drop sphere is made of inflatable metallic foil, so don't bother to look for the entrance. Just cut a hole in it with the oversized can opener you'll find in the toolbox. After Dr. Maurice gets aboard, jettison the thing. Only get the radio and locator unit out first. It gets used again." The tool did look like a giant can opener. Brian carefully felt the resilient metal skin that covered the lock entrance until he was sure there was nothing on the other side. Then he jabbed the point through and cut a ragged hole in the thin foil. Dr. Morris boiled out of the sphere, knocking Brian aside. "'What's the matter?' Brian asked. There was no radio on the other's suit. He couldn't answer. But he did shake his fist angrily. The helmet ports were opaque, so there was no way to tell what expressions went with the gesture. Brian shrugged and turned back to salvaging the equipment pack, pushing the punctured balloon free and sealing the lock. When pressure was pumped back to ship normal, he cracked his helmet and motioned the other to do the same. "'You're a pack of dirty lying dogs!' Dr. Maurice said when the helmet came off. Brian was completely baffled. Dr. Leah Maurice had long dark hair, large eyes, and a delicately shaped mouth now taut with anger. Dr. Maurice was a woman. "'Are you the filthy swine responsible for this atrocity?' Dr. Maurice asked menacingly. "'In the control room,' Brian said quickly, knowing when cowardice was preferable to valor. "'A man named Igel. There's a lot of him to hate. You can have a good time doing it. I just joined up myself.' He was talking to her back as she stormed from the room. Brian hurried after her, not wanting to miss the first human spark of interest in the trip to date. "'Kidnapped, lied to, and forced against my will. There is no court in the galaxy that won't give you the maximum sentence, and I'll scream with pleasure as they roll your fat body into solitary.' "'They shouldn't have sent a woman,' Agel said, completely ignoring her words. I asked for a highly qualified exobiologist for a difficult assignment, someone young and tough enough to do fieldwork under severe conditions. So the recruiting office sends me the smallest female they can find, one who'll melt in the first rain." "'I will not!' Leah shouted. "'Female resiliency is a well-known fact, and I'm in far better condition than the average woman. Which has nothing to do with what I'm telling you. I was hired for a job in the university on Mahler's world and signed a contract to that effect. Then this bully of an agent tells me the contract has been changed. Read subparagraph 189C or some such nonsense, and I'll be transshipping. He stuffed me into that suffocating basketball without a by-your-leave and they threw me overboard. If that is not a violation of personal privacy—" "'Cut a new course, Brian,' Igel broke in. Find the nearest settled planet and head us there. We have to drop this woman and find a man for this job. We are going to what is undoubtedly the most interesting planet an exobiologist ever conceived of, but we need a man who can take orders and not faint when it gets too hot." Brian was lost. Igel had done all the navigating, and Brian had no idea how to begin a search like this. "'Oh, no, you don't,' Leah said. You don't get rid of me that easily. I placed first in my class, and most of the five hundred other students were male. 
This is only a man's universe because the men say so. What is the name of this garden planet where we are going? Dis. I'll give you a briefing as soon as I get the ship on course. He turned to the controls and Leah slipped out of her suit and went into the lavatory to comb her hair. Breen closed his mouth, aware suddenly it had been open for a long time. "'Is that what you call applied psychology?' he asked. "'Not really. She was going to go along with the job in the end, since she did sign the contract, even if she didn't read the fine print, but not until she had exhausted her feelings. I just shortened the process by switching her onto the male superiority hate.' Most women who succeed in normally masculine fields have a reflexive antipathy there. They have been hit on the head with it so much." He fed the course tape into the console and scowled. But there was a good chunk of truth in what I said. I wanted a young, fit, and highly qualified biologist from recruiting. I never thought they would find a female one. And it's too late to send her back now. This is no place for a woman." Why? Brian asked, as Leah appeared in the doorway. "'Come inside, and I'll show you both,' Agel said. End of chapter 4